What is with police in America? How did it get that way? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. What's going on? He's not breathing. Can you get a pulse? Barely. Call a code. Get Nambia back from the nurse's station. Heart's still working, means synapses are still firing. We just need to get a message through. Prosperity for the few, the rights of U.S. corporations to extract from the land of Central America and exploit the people of Central America. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. What is the reality of law enforcement in America? Are police there to serve the common good? Protect the good guys from the bad? Is it true that, in general, the rich get richer and the poor get prison? Since the murder of George Floyd, all the world seems to have woken up to something really ugly and, at its very base, racist. Out of that came the move to defund the police— what of that? Is there something about why do people want to become police officers? Is there, as we've been told, one system of equal justice for all? Is there something about the nature of policing in America that has always been intended to protect and serve one economic class? With us to discuss an essay he wrote relative to his new book, Rogue's Gallery, the birth of modern policing and organized crime in the Gilded Age in New York. Our guest is John Aller, a lawyer and journalist. Thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you for having me. John Aller is a lawyer and journalist, author of six books, including 2019's White Shoe, How a New Breed of Wall Street Lawyers Changed Big Business in the American Century, before that came the release of The Swamp Fox, How Francis Marion Saved the American Revolution, American Queen, The Rise and Fall of Kate Chase Sprague, Civil War Belle of the North, and Gilded Age Woman of Scandal. All her worked in the law firm of Wilkie, Farr, and Gallagher in New York as an associate in the litigation department. In 2011, John Aller retired from active legal practice to concentrate on his writing career. Two books followed, White Shoe and the new one, Rogue's Gallery, The Birth of Modern Policing and Organized Crime in Gilded Age, New York, with an introductory essay on the History News Network, which I highly recommend. Well, again, thanks for being with us, John Aller. As one of my guests advised, relative to understanding current realities, here's what you need to do. Think with history. People rarely do that. Different cultures in different periods of history have had an assortment of ways of keeping the peace, resolving conflicts, and protecting innocent people from others who may be dangerous. We're going to focus on a slice of American policing, that of New York City, beginning in the so-called Gilded Age. Your essay starts out noting that Complaints about the New York City Police Department, or NYPD, are as old as the department itself. Please set the stage. What was the city like when the police department was first established in 1845? What problems were police tasked with addressing? I wonder if you could paint a picture for us. Okay. Um, 
Well, uh, New York in uh, the mid-19th century was uh, a city undergoing growing pains. Um, it had been settled, as we know, by the, primarily by the Dutch in the 17th century. But now in the uh, 19th century, early 1800s, um, you had uh, uh, this beginning of a wave of immigrants from Europe, uh, principally at that time uh, Irish and and German and some others, and so the city was growing faster than the um, than the old police department, if you want to call it a police department, was able to keep up with. The original police department was really a private force yeah. of constables. Uh, they were non-professional. They didn't have full arrest powers. And they worked on the reward system. You know, if you had, if you were robbed and you wanted to get a cop to um, help you, you had to promise to pay him a reward. Um, a lot of the, uh, and, and a lot of the, those volunteer policemen were not very, you know, they were physically unfit. Um, they were over the hill. So it was really not a, not a good system. A lot of river crime at that time, uh, in fact, pirates, you might call them, uh-huh. um, uh-huh. along the East River and, sure. and Hudson River. So you had a you had a voluntary, non-professional force, which was then professionalized in 1845. Um, and, uh, you know, it was better, but it still didn't live up ex- to expectations. You had a lot of policemen who, in at least the first number of years, didn't want to wear the blue uniform. Why they didn't it? like uniform. They didn't like uniforms because they thought it it, um, it it stood for a standing army, and they wanted to be independent. Uh, eventually, they did, you know, agree to don the uniforms with the fabled brass buttons. Um, but that gives you an idea of how how the police department sort of inched along in the early years. So, what what problems were those early police tasked with addressing? Well, as I said, there a lot of river crime, uh, you know, vessels coming in, ships from various places, and seamen would get off the uh, boats and either they'd be criminals themselves or they'd be attacked by criminals yeah. and robbed. Um, and uh, just a, a city that was growing exponentially. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, at that time, you, London's bobbies um, had a had a higher ratio of law enforcement officers to the population than New York did. So they were just sort of overwhelmed. My goodness, and I wonder how... There's been all kinds of feelings about immigrants throughout American history, sometimes favorable, you know, those words of Emma Lazarus, and other times not so favorable. I wonder how this wave of immigrants was was dealt with. I'm sure there were all kinds of different uh, uh, attitudes within the city. Yeah, well, it's interesting. As they say, the early immigrants were, you know, principally Irish and German. The Irish were very much disfavored, um, looked down upon, particularly by the Anglo-Saxon wasp, Mm -hmm. um, Native Native, uh, I'll say Native Americans, not meaning uh, as in Indians, but, uh, you know, people either born in, in the U.S. or maybe may be um, born in England and quickly transported over. So, and of course, the English and Irish never got along. So, <laughs> the, uh, so the Irish were, were highly discriminated against, and, you know, the discrimination they faced, uh, and later the Italians, 
um, you know, was was comparable to the racial discrimination we've seen in, in you know, in, in more recent decades. Um, the Irish were perceived as rowdy, drunken, <laughs> disorderly. The Italians were dirty, oily, and cutthroat. You know, there was just... Um, they were not. Uh, the Germans were held, I think, in a little bit higher esteem, but um, but uh, immigrants in general were were suspect. Were yeah, I wish there was. Uh, uh, in the past, we'll find out how much of this police these police issues are in the past, and how many of these are still going on. And many of us, thinking about New York in the early days, have seen the very impressive 2002 Martin Scorsese film. Gangs of New York, Leonard DiCaprio, Leonardo DiCaprio, I should say, and Daniel Day-Lewis. Amazing performances. I believe that was set at something called Five Corners in Lower Manhattan. My memory may not be correct. How? Well, it's close. It's called. It was. It's the Five Points. Five Points. Um, yeah, where five named for five streets that came together in one spot. It's actually right where the current, the new federal courthouse is. It's currently in Chinatown. There's a park there now, Columbus uh -huh. Park. So how um, close to reality was that movie relative to gangs and police in that period of time? Well, it was, um, it, it had an accurate look. Uh, that's, that's pretty much the way New York looked at the time and what the gang members looked like. Um, I think it was accurate in the sense that the cops were pretty much all Irish. As I mentioned before, the Irish you know, were disfavored as a class, and yet many, uh, a high percentage of the police force in the early years, and I think even today, but the, certainly back then, was Irish. Um, I would say that the gangs in uh, the movie were probably um, armed with a little more sophisticated weapons than they really had back then. Uh -huh. I think the movie shows them with knives and hatchets and, and pistols, I think um, at the time it was more fists and uh -huh. what they call brick brats. Um, but, you know, the, the violence and the poverty in the tenements, I think, was uh, very well shown. Mm. Interesting. Well, it must, it must have been quite a process of researching to write this book. I'm always interested in, in that. Tell us about that process, please. Well, I... In, in this book and, and others that I've done, I, I try to focus as much as possible on prime, what they call primary sources. Sure. Uh, you know, what something written at the time, close to the event, as opposed to what some author has written, you know, 200 years later. Although the secondary sources are important too yeah. for perspective. But but so you know, newspapers, old newspapers, uh, court records and transcripts. They had what they called fire insurance maps back then, um, which, where you could look and find a building and see how many stories it was and that sort of thing. Uh, census records, um, and then criminal um, uh, city directories, and then criminal memoirs. A lot of the uh, number of criminals who had gone straight and wrote memoirs of their yeah. uh, crime days. And, you know, sometimes they're embellished, but, they're, but they are a, a good good insight into the conditions at the time. Yeah, interesting. And I know that in the early days of, of fire departments, there was a lot of competition between the firefighters. And yes, yes. Well, there was no official city fire department until, I think, about 1865. And before that, you had volunteer 
fire departments, which were more or less made up by the gang members who kind of banded together into different volunteer fire units. And sometimes they would both race to the scene of a fire. And instead of putting out the fire, they'd start fighting each other right. over who had the right to put out the fire. And then mean, meantime, the building burns down. Um, <laughs> ah, yes, the history of civil service. <laughs> <laughs> well, and... You know, I'm just remembering, I've read a fair amount about uh, different wars in history. I don't know why that's so fascinating, but it is. There were these draft riots in New York yes. in 1863. And yes. t- what what was the role of police back then? And if I have that right, a lot of the people in New York felt like they don't want to risk their lives defending black people. That's true. That's true. Um just to go back a, a little bit, you mentioned the, the background, uh, the, the Martin Scorsese movie. You had a, a couple of gangs called one was called the Dead Rabbits. That was the Leo DiCaprio. And then you had some other groups that were led by Bill the Butcher. OK, so they they rioted and the police couldn't handle it. Um, the police were rivals at that time. You had some police uh, were favored the Irish and some favored the the more. Native American uh-huh. group. Um, and so when they rioted, the police just couldn't put down the riot. And, you know, a number of people were killed. It was very violent. That was 1857. Uh-huh. So flash forward to 1863, you had yes. the next big riot, still the big, still the most deadly riot in, in all of American history, not just Whoa. New York history, was the draft rights. Over 100 people killed. And it started because the federal government instituted the um, right. the draft, the mandatory conscription. And what really stuck in the craw of uh, the immigrants, a lot of the Irish immigrants, was the fact that you could get out of the draft right. by paying three hundred dollars, mm-hmm. uh, which was a lot of money back then, yeah, <laughs> in which the the people living in the tenements didn't have. And so a lot of the uh, um, Irish and other immigrants viewed this draft as a way, a, a war really to free black people to could then compete against them for jobs. Uh-huh. So they didn't, you know, and, and so they didn't want to be any part of being dragged into that. They started a riot. They attacked all, a lot of newspaper offices and police departments, uh, precinct offices. And, um, one in famous uh, attack was on what was then called uh you wouldn't call it that today but back then it was called the uh, uh I think it was the colored orphans asylum yes, yes. where where small uh, uh black children lived who were orphans yes. and they actually burned that the rioters burned that down and the uh children had to be um rescued out of there and led to and ended up going to um, what, what's now con- called Roosevelt Island. Um, but it was really the police who helped them, who rescued them. Yes, it was the police right. who fought, who fought the, fought the rioters, even though uh, many of the rioters were Irish. And by this time, a lot of the police department was Irish. So they were in kind of fighting their own in, in a sense. And eventually they put down the riot. They, they did need help from uh, federal troops who had been at Gettysburg, who came then to New York and helped them put it down. But this was really a seminal event in the police department history because for the first time, the police were seen as a group which had um, restored 
order as opposed to allowing the chaos which they had done in the dead rabbit riot a few years earlier so it was um it, it kind of was a, a feather in the cap of the of the new york police at the time nice it's good to hear and uh yeah they they, they every now and then uh, serve the common good and and that yet's yeah, an amazing story about the uh so-called colored orphans home there that people were, mm-hmm. were doing that and just any black person was yes yeah a lot of lynchings took place yeah. um uh, but also the the head of the police force a, a white man was attacked by the mob and nearly died oh my um so well if, if you just tuned in bert cohen here the show is keeping democracy alive we're talking about police history our guest today is john Aller. Uh, former lawyer, now journalist, author. His new book is Rogue's Gallery, The Birth of Modern Policing and Organized Crime in Gilded Age, New York. The Gilded Age, the end of the 19th and start of the 20th centuries, were known as the Gilded Age. I suspect we're in a rather similar, if not more extreme, Gilded Age right now. I don't think the Gilded Age is restricted to that specific period in the past. One could argue that it's even more of a Gilded Age today, with very few people having unfathomable amounts of riches and the middle class pretty much decimated, uh, leaving most people with very little disposable income. I grew up when there was a middle class. Anyway, tell us please about that earlier Gilded Age. What happened in New York City with the new economy of the times beginning in the 1870s, and how were the police part of that picture? Well, um we just talked about the draft riots and the civil war. So now we're in the post civil war period, the 1870s, early 1870s. And after the war, there began a a period of industrialization, you know, railroads and uh, other industries, um, which required things like stocks and bonds for financing. So the, the, um, the um, so-called robber barons, uh, you know, uh, the Vanderbilts and John D. Rockefellers and J.P. Morgans and the like, um, they amassed great amounts of wealth through this industrialization. Uh, and at the other end of the spectrum were was uh, very extreme poverty uh, in, in New York, uh, particularly below 14th Street um, in, in the tenements. So you had a real stratification of society then. Um, now, the the problem that created, from the from the perspective of the Wall Street men, uh, there was still a lot of crime going on, even down on Wall Street, pickpocketing and stealing, you know, money from the cashier when he's on the way to the bank to deposit the money, etc. So they the money men wanted protection, which they didn't feel they were getting, and so enter a guy named Thomas Burns who was um, yes. uh, worked his way up uh, through the system, became a captain and then an inspector and then uh, and then head of the detective bureau. And he really um, made it his main mission, and he was good at it, uh, to protect uh, the Wall Street money men from uh, not so much violent crime, although that was, you know, part of his uh, uh, repertoire, but... Um, uh, from, from from a lot of the petty crime that plagued uh, Wall Street. And so a couple of things that he did was he set up what they called a deadline, D-E-A-D, 
line. Uh, it's it was a you know a figurative line that ran across I think Fulton Street in downtown. And his policy was well anybody any crook who was found below that deadline now so that's this is the Wall Street area and did not have an adequate explanation for why he was there oh. was was sent off to jail um, at least for a night. Um, the other thing he did was establish a detective station right there in Wall Street with a telephone system so that if a bank was robbed, they could immediately telephone headquarters. In the old days, they'd have to send a messenger to headquarters. So he kind of cleaned up Wall Street from crime, and he saw that as his main mission. I think he was less concerned about crime in the in the tenements as long as it stayed there. It wasn't his... Um, wasn't so much his concern. He was less concerned about um, the people who he considered to be kind of, I'll, I'll call them the hayseeds from <laughs> middle the middle America who came into New York looking for to make a quick buck on gambling or something and then got conned in some you know game on the street. He felt you know well if you were dumb enough to do that. Uh, you didn't deserve protection. So he knew where his bread was buttered, and he um, he became, uh, you know, uh, very much revered in New York. And he did clamp down on the gangs and, and really made it, made New York a safer place, both from violent crime and from property crime during his long tenure. And uh, as you say, he kind of made the world safe for plutocracy. Yes, well, that's a play on the Woodrow well, Wilson's yes. famous uh, "We must make the world safe for democracy." But, but uh, yeah, so uh, he, the other thing that, in exchange for what he did for them, uh, the Wall Street types gave him—I'll call them stock tips. Today, you would call it insider information. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, and it, 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 believe it or not, it wasn't really technically illegal back then. I believe um, it. There, yeah. was no, there, there was no SEC to you know, police that kind of stuff. So he became rich on stock tips. Um, he later testified in, a, in a, an investigation that he, he, never, he never, anything he ever invested in on his own, he lost money. But uh, these guys made him rich, and he was you know, very candid about that. Hmm. Um, well, some people would say, yeah, well, what's wrong with that? Yeah, I can think of a few <laughs> things. You, your book is titled The Rogues Gallery, which you write was first established by Thomas Burns. Why is that the title of your book? What is its significance? And in what ways was it like today's highly controversial facial recognition as a crime-fighting tool? Yeah, well, the title Rogues Gallery, it's sort of a double meaning or double entendre it's um rogues gallery you think of it as it could it, it could signify the criminals in general the rogues at the time but it was also a so it was a figurative a figure of speech in that respect it's also a literal thing in that in police headquarters there was they called it the rogues gallery and it was hundreds of mugshots of criminals and a little biographical, you know, mention of, you know, how high, tall they were, weight, et cetera, and how they could be recognized. Um, they had to sit for their mugshots and, and sometimes they tried to avoid 
being photographed, but they'd hold them in place until they finally got a shot. Sometimes in some of these mugshots, you'd see the guy, he's looking down mm-hmm. or looking off to the side. Um, anyway, so it was a, it was a valuable tool in those days because you didn't have anything akin to it. Um, now as far as facial recognition today, right. uh, I guess it's, I guess it's analogous. I think one difference, a, a, a critical difference would be these mugshots in the rogues gallery. These were by and large proven or convicted criminals, um, as opposed to facial recognition of, you know, you could have a lot of ordinary citizens' faces in that database who've never been convicted or accused of a crime. So it's it was not nearly as far-reaching um, into the general populace as maybe as facial recognition. I'm not an expert on the technology of facial recognition, but but um, uh, you know the Rogues Gallery was was it was distributed to. Other people in other cities, law enforcement in other cities, because a lot of these criminals at that time tended to go back and forth between New York and Chicago or New York and Boston, et cetera. So, so it was a it was a helpful tool at the time. I can imagine. I mean, I I would hate to be somebody who looks a lot like somebody in that rogues gallery. I mean, these things, <laughs> you know, I'm sure it could happen. And and you say this again. Thomas Burns also pioneered the third degree interrogation method. Now that term, the third degree, is a term it's still floating around these days. We heard it a lot in the 1930s crime films. What, what, what is the third degree interrogation method? And tell us about Burns in that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if he invented it so much because... He pioneered it. Um, he, he pioneered it and, and, and made it... Um, pop, he popularized it, I would say. Uh, you know, there, there. I'd say there are two aspects to it. One is the, the what you think of probably from the movies. The third degree would be the you know the physical abuse of a of a suspect or prisoner, slapping them, punching them, etc. Um, and then the other aspect would be the more psychological warfare. Now Burns was not above using the rougher tactics, um, but he he preferred uh, psychological. Um, methods to get a, a suspect to confess. And you have to remember that back then you did not have, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit later, you didn't have things like, at least in the Gilded Age, you didn't have fingerprinting, mm-hmm. you didn't have DNA, uh, you didn't have a lot of the tools um, that uh, that we that uh, sure. law enforcement has today. So, you know, one there were really only two, a couple of ways you could um, convict somebody back then. Uh, one was to get a confession out of them, either yeah. by legitimate or or less legitimate means, uh, or you know you basically catch them red-handed, um, uh, or you had really strong eyewitness testimony. Now, eyewitness testimony is inherently uh, unreliable yes. often, but um, but uh, you know so. Um, and, and of course, yeah, there were clues you develop, uh, you know, legwork and uh, gumshoe work. But lacking a lot of the forensic tools, such as ballistics, that was another big one, blood oh, yeah. typing, um, you didn't have that stuff. And so, you know, the police were kind of left to their own devices. And I think courts kind of looked the other way. Yeah. <laughs> um, in in allowing that because they figured, well, how else are you going to catch the uh, bad guys. 
a lot to talk about in that whole area in the various interrogation methods. I wonder, you know, I mean, uh, John McCain used to argue against using tough interrogation methods, also known as torture, because he said it was mm-hmm. it was unreliable. And in wars, you know, the other side could use it on, on us as well. But yeah, he wondered right. about that. That's a bit different. Uh, how reliable was the information which could be extracted from the third degree and other rough stuff? Well, I, I guess I'd give you two scenarios. One is where the confession, let's say, that's extracted uh-huh. is really is really the only evidence of guilt. In that case, I would say it's you know pretty unreliable. Um, then there were other methods, and this was with the you know, sort of how the police would rationalize it. If if you know that the guy's guilty, and you have other evidence that you that that you're you know to a moral certainty that the guy's guilty, but you don't have anything that can you know necessarily stand up in court, well then they would view that as well we're just getting him to admit the truth. Um, so you know so that's kind of the way it was uh, it was it was seen, and as I said. Uh, um, the courts didn't really eh, pay that much attention to the rights of suspects. I don't think the police, uh-huh. certainly Burns, did not did not think um, that um, uh, criminals, professional criminals at least, had any rights that the police were bound to respect. Yeah. Um, um, you know. Yeah, two systems of justice, it sounds like. I mean, how familiar is that nowadays? There's a lot of people who don't have, you know, financial resources who feel like, uh, especially if their uh, skin happens to be of a darker hue, they see uh, a couple of different systems of of justice. And police are, are involved in that. And we'll get there eventually in our discussion here. And if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about history of police in New York. Our guest is John Oller. He's got a new book out, Rogues Gallery, The Birth of Modern Policing and Organized Crime in the Gilded Age of New York. And I, I thought it was interesting you mentioned that uh, Jacob Reese called it a little a little wholesome slugging. Uh, <laughs> I, I wonder if... Is the third degree, I wonder how much they still use that uh, not particularly subtle method of, of uh, getting confessions and things like that. I wonder, is it relegated to history? Now? I don't know if it's totally relegated to history. I, I, I think it's probably done when, to the extent it's done, it's done when police feel they can get away with it. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of things today that, you know, with body cams and cell phone cameras and the like, that it's, it's not... Um, it's a little more exposed, a little more transparent. Back then, there really was no way to. It was just the cop and the and the suspect. Right. So there's no, no no real evidence of that. Um, one difference I think today, and I don't know uh, uh, how much of a difference it makes, but I think part of the culture of the country today, really ever since ni- the mid 1960s comes out of the famous Miranda decision. Yes. Um, you know, you have the right to remain silent to, and, and if you don't, if you, you have a right to a lawyer, if you can't afford a lawyer, one will be appointed for you and paid for by the government, et cetera. And I think that's become almost a ritual. It's a ritualistic 
reading. But I think suspects, criminals today have a have now it doesn't mean they always um, act in their own interest, but I think they understand better than criminals did in the 19th century that what you say can only get you in trouble. And, um, you know, I think there was more, more of an effort on the part of suspects back, you know, a hundred years ago to try to talk them, talk their way out of things. I think, uh, you know, you watch enough movies, (laughs) um, and, and you see that people generally don't talk their way out of things. They usually say something that, that incriminates them. And I think, I, I think people understand that today better. And, uh, so I think it's it's a it's a little harder for the police today to use these you know psychological tricks on people because I mean if you watch The Wire, uh, the HBO series of a number of years ago, you know somebody be arrested and they bring him haul him in and or this happened on um, uh, Breaking Bad also, yeah. um, you know and and the suspect would just say lawyer. Lawyer, you know, they'd ask a question, lawyer, right, right, meaning, right. meaning, meaning you can't question me anymore until I have my lawyer present. Well, people didn't tend, criminals didn't tend to do that a hundred years ago. First of all, they didn't have the constitutional right to a lawyer necessarily. And um, so they were kind of left uh, to flounder on their own. So I, I think to, in at least in that respect, the playing field has been evened up a little little more than it used to be 100, 150 years ago. And I can't help but think, I mean, we have all these uh, cell phones pervading the culture, and we've seen so many cases of, of police uh, acting in ways that are, to shall we say, questionable. But the cell phones are not everywhere, and one has to wonder, you know, over the past couple hundred years, how often things that you know today we catch on cell phones and and bust the uh, person who's committing the crime, really the the police officer who's who's uh, overdoing it, how much they've gotten away with that. And you go into, frankly, you know, in the black communities in America, uh, yeah, it's it's different. It is they they people have different experiences there of of the uh, mm-hmm. police and. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Back to Burns, one more thing about... There was muckraking journalist Lincoln Steffens who had a description of Burns and his law enforcement methods. Who who was Lincoln Steffens? Why do I know that name? And please tell us about what he was saying. Lincoln Steffens was one of the, what they call them, the the muckrakers, a group of journalists um, in the late uh, 1800s who exposed corruption and, you know, crusaded on behalf of, of reforms. Um... And uh, he, he, he was in New York at the time, and uh, he had a, I'd call it a grudging, same with Jacob Rees, who wrote the, um, uh, the famous book, How the Other Half Lives, about the oh, white yes, tenements yes, yes. With, all those, with all those photographs. Um, both mm. of them, they had sort of a grudging admiration for Burns. I mean, they understood what he was all about. They understood that he was tough, that he, you know, uh, came up to the line, if not crossed the line, um, with some regularity, uh, but Stephens himself was pickpocketed. His his weekly pay from his employer at the time was in an envelope was taken from him um, on a, um, a trolley car <laughs> on his way home, 
and he um, he knew Burns, so he went to Burns. He says, you know, can you help me? And Burns mm. says, well, you know, if, he said, uh, come back Monday morning, I'll have your money for you. Um, and then Burns started, you know, contacting his network of informants. They were called, you know, stool pigeons. Right. Um, he had an extensive network of, you know, minor criminals who he you know, would uh, cut breaks to as long as they snitched on bigger mm-hmm. criminals. And as long as, you know, if he said, I got a friend and, you know, he's been robbed, he needs his money back, you know, you guys find it and get it back to me. So anyway, that Monday morning came um, and uh, Stephens came to the police bureau and Burns handed him the envelope with the money in it intact and said, here's your money, you know. Um, So, uh, you know, he, he, again, you know, now the informant system, the confidential informant obviously still exists. If any time, any, any 1930s Warner brothers movie Mm -hmm. you've ever seen, Mm -hmm. you know, they talk about the stool pigeons today. It's today. It's probably, more in the in the realm of drugs, you know, you have informants, oh, right. uh, under in un, or and or undercover agents. But you know, again, back in the 1800s, when they didn't have the DNA and the ballistics, etc., um, they had to rely on intelligence. You know, I would call it under the broad rubric of intelligence sure. gathering um, was a was a major you know aspect of law enforcement. And you remind me of another movie, Casablanca, the usual gang of suspects. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. They had that. Right. Well, you note that as, quote, as policing became ever more specialized and efficient, so did crime. Please explain that. Well, as uh, going again back to the um, Martin Scorsese movie, those those gangs, they were pretty disorganized. They were just kind of all over the place. Um and uh, as time went on, and as I mentioned, the movie kind of embellished a little bit by putting guns in their hands when I don't think criminals necessarily carried guns back then. Expensive. But uh, as, as time went on, yes, um, the gangs became um, more hierarchical, more structured, more organized. They had more sophisticated weapons, pistols. Um, and uh, so it was kind of a parallel development. The police law enforcement gradually, very gradually started to get more forensic uh, abilities. Um, Fingerprinting came in in the early 1900s. Um, But at the same time, uh, the the gangs and the criminals formed themselves into stronger, more sturdy units as well. And of course, eventually the... um, the uh, so-called mafia right. uh, in, developed in New York, which is, you know, a very hierarchical, um, um, well-oiled machine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they are. And there was a lot of money to be made from alcohol prohibition. And, uh, you know, it's still there to be made with uh, illegal drugs. I think we're starting to get a sense of that. But the two, my impression has always been the two sort of work off each other. Like, I, I can imagine, I don't know, but the uh, alcohol smuggling industry back during that prohibition kind of yeah. worked, you know, sort of opposite police and sort of with police, and they sort of had a, a yeah, synchronous I, relationship. Yeah, I think so. Now, I, you know, my book pretty much ends in 1910, so uh-huh. I didn't really go into sure, sure, sure. prohibition, which came in 
1920, but I, you know, I have a, 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 a general, a general understanding of, you know, as anyone has heard about prohibition and, yeah. the, um, you know, and all the, all the movies, the untouchables and, and the like, oh, you had, yeah. uh, anywhere there, anything that's made illegal, whether it's drugs, um, and this is a point that harkens back to my book, whether it's drugs, whether it's, uh, alcohol, whether it's prostitution, whether it's gambling, any any form of illegality, there will be ways for um, corrupt law enforcers to take advantage of that system, of that illegality, and you know extract or demand uh-huh. payment in the form of bribes or extortion from people for you know to look the other way. Um, and that's, you know, endemic, I think, to uh, law enforcement. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I think that particular, you know, the bribe taking yeah. is, 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 is not prevalent today uh, as it was back right. in during Prohibition. Um, uh, back then it was, you know, it was rampant. It was just the way things were done. I think there's at least a recognition I mean, it was always understood. It was a, not a good thing. People understood, you know, that they shouldn't be doing that. But it was kind of like, well, that's life. That's the way the system works. And I think, you know, as the decades went on, uh, and you still have scandals, you know, from time to time. Um, but, you know, prostitution rings that it turned out were protected by the cops. So I think there was one in New York a few years ago. But I think I think the general feeling <laughs> among the populace today is, you know, that's not an acceptable way yeah. of doing business. Of course, it you know, keeping it so profitable uh, is is wonderful for organized crime. I mean, I, I, yeah. I know that yeah. the police chiefs, at least these days, are adamant against uh, legalizing cannabis. It's And it helps the uh, criminal world quite a bit to keep it illegal. And it always kind of has been that yeah, way. Scarcity. Scare, you know, when yeah. you have scarcity, then it's... Supply it's and value. demand. Supply yeah. and demand. Absolutely. Right. Well, back right. to history. Theodore yeah. Roosevelt was a unique, complicated character in many ways. Personally, some of his uh, parts of his character I find terrific. Others I find despicable. But he headed the New York City Police Commission starting in 1895. That's how he started to make his reputation. What were his innovations? And as part of those, what was his campaign which resulted in great unpopularity? Well, um, TR came in to head the police commission after one of these big scandals. There was a big investigation that showed the cops were basically all on the take. Um, you know, getting money from prostitutes, from gamblers, from Sunday liquor dealers. Back then, you couldn't sell liquor on Sunday. Um, and so he decided he wanted to clean that stuff up. And also, cops back then in New York, uh, they got their jobs. They had to pay, you know, thousands of dollars to get appointed as a cop and then to get promoted as a cop. Uh, and a little, some of it got shifted to the um higher ups in the police department. Some of it went to politicians, but anyway, it was a very um, broken system. TR came in and said, from now on, it's going to be merit system, civil service, you know, whatever grade you get on the test, the highest score wins. Okay. And gets the job. Um, there were other things he instituted like a bicycle squad, which was sort of a forerunner of the traffic 
Division Bureau. Um, he put telephone call boxes on the streets so that if a crime was happening or somebody was victimized, they could uh, a cop could call headquarters right there from the street. He instituted uh, pistol training. Most cops didn't carry didn't carry guns back then, or if they did, they may have never shot shot it before. <laughs> never never took it out of their holster. Yeah, it's good so to be they trained. Took a, so they took a bunch of these guys down, to, you know, to a pistol range, and you know, you had to get a certain score, you know, fifty out of seventy-five or something to qualify. And uh, you know, the first few guys got a score of like two. <laughs> You know, and they, you know, or, you know, they'd shoot and they'd shoot out a gaslight, you know, so he uh, instituted pistol training. He had some uh, women clerks, secretaries before him. The only women who worked in the police department were the jail matrons, you know, who kept uh, watch over the female prisoners. Mm-hmm. So he had some women clerks and he instituted more stricter discipline on cops who had broken the laws so what did, um, sorry to interrupt but what did he do that it, that made him unpopular in many ways well he also he said um you know he was he, he was not a prohibitionist he said but the law was the law and in at that time new york like uh most places you could not sell liquor on sunday and you couldn't sell it i think past like 1 a.m on other days that was a law that was honored in the breach. Uh, it was rampantly violated. Again, uh, if you were a saloon keeper, you just paid the cop, local cop on the beat, a bribe, and he, you know, let you operate on Sunday. Uh, Roosevelt cracked down. He said, "No, we're going to close down all the Sunday liquor establishments oh and make sure everybody's closed up after 1 a.m., et cetera, et cetera." And the problem with that was, you know, people still liked to drink on Sunday, especially the, the German the German immigrants in their beer halls and the Irish immigrants uh, and the other poor immigrants who, you know, sweated in the labor six days a week and viewed Sunday as their day off, yeah. you know, and they like to go to the local bar, you know. So um, this created a, a huge backlash and finally T.R., uh, resigned from the police commission, and uh, I think then he went be- became secretary of the navy, and then vice president, and then president after yes. McKinley was assassinated. Yeah, quite quite a colorful character in American history, and we do like to keep it not only educational but also entertaining on keeping democracy alive. And in that vein, <laughs> tell us about. A few of the colorful characters in your book. It really paints a picture. Some of their names, even. Yeah, well, there was... Um, I'll just... I won't try to yeah, just name a few. all of them, or even sure, most sure. of them. Just a few. Uh, there was a cop called Alexander Clubber Williams. He got his nickname because he had this 26-inch billy club. It was really made of locust wood, and it really oh, cracked geez. skulls. And he, he would use it, you know, on guilty and innocent alike. Um he was brought up on charges for brutality over 200 times, but he never had his badge taken away. Um, there was um, Marm Mandelbaum, known as Mother Mandelbaum. She was uh, a German woman immigrant, uh, Jewish, and uh, very observant. Uh, went to synagogue every week, but she was 
uh, as crooked as they come. She didn't steal, you know, out of her own from her own hand, but she was a what they called a criminal receiver of stolen goods or a fence. So all the all the criminals in the city would steal, and then she would take their hot loot off their hands, um, and then turn around and sell it. Um, uh, she was like 250 pounds and, mm-hmm. you know, enter- entertained uh, cops and judges and criminals all mm-hmm. alike at her, din- at her dinner table. Mm-hmm. Um, that- uh, Danny Driscoll was the head of the YOs, which was the most cutthroat gang in, in New York. He was a vicious, uh, vicious killer. He arrested, you know, 26 times in one year and eventually hanged for, uh, murder, and the uh, last person I'll mention was um, uh, Joe Petrosino, was the Italian Sherlock Holmes. He was, uh, at the time, uh, I don't know, there was three or 4,000 man force in the police department, and only 17 spoke Italian. So as, a, as, as Italian crime, the mafia, the Black Hand, some of those uh, terrorizing groups grew in significance, uh, it was felt that you needed someone who knew the Italian community to, poli- to help police it. So Joe Petrosino, a hmm. uh, real short short guy, did not meet the height requirements at the time, but he got a waiver of, of that, um, and uh, he became, you know, widely known for uh, for uh, putting away Italian criminals. Interesting. It seems like, you know, every immigrant group was represented in either the crime aspect or the police aspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An an interesting stat that I did not realize uh, until I got into researching the book is that during this period, the Gilded Age, you did not have the demographic breakdown that you have today. The city was 98% white um, and very, very small African-American population at the time very very small asian population until a little later in the 20th century um it was pretty much you know if they weren't if they weren't english born or you know anglican anglo-saxon they were german they were irish they were italian they were east european uh jews uh, that was, you know, by far the vast majority of the city. So you didn't have necessarily. Now there were some, there were incidents, there were some race, racial incidents back then, um, but it was less, you know, white on black, black on white at, in in that era than it is today. It was more, um, you know, quote American versus foreign. Uh huh. Yeah, we still have that with, uh, you've seen some of the uh, ugly scenes down at the uh, southern border with uh, people of a darker hue again uh, coming into the United States and uh, how... Yes, right, and I forget, and and the Hispanic population in the Gilded Age was, you know, negligible. I'm sure. 0.1%, so so you really have a much different rainbow demographic today to, to deal with. Largely white rainbow, yeah. Yes. <laughs> and, and you say, set against the backdrop of New York's Gilded Age with its extremes of untold wealth, tenement poverty, and rising social unrest, Rogue's Gallery offers echoes and lessons for our own time. Of what can we get a better understanding relative to policing in our own time from your book? 
Uh, okay, so I compiled just a little list of things of um, why what what matters from the past to, to today, and I'll just run down some. Of them. I, I think that Great, um, thank you. Uh, history shows that um, uh, integrity matters. Police corruption and brutality breed cynicism and contempt for the law on the part of the general population. I think that was true then, probably true now. Um, inequality matters. When citizens are poor and powerless or feel powerless, uh, they often f- find outlet in criminal activity. Um, competence matters. Well-trained, uh, reasonably paid, and educated cops are better than those who lack those things. Uh, leadership matters. Um, Burns, for whatever you, you think of him, was a strong leader. Mm-hmm. So was TR. You may not agree with all their policies, but but they were forceful presences. And uh, um, tech, as uh, we've alluded to in the past, technology matters. Fingerprinting, blood typing, handwriting analysis, DNA, all those things we have today didn't have back then. But um, um, uh, the, the police mission matters. Back then, the police were obligated by law to house the homeless in the precinct stations. They were called the tramp lodging houses. Um, And uh, Roosevelt did not like that system. Neither did Jacob Reese. Um, You know, you'd have the you'd have the homeless sleeping, you know, next alongside the police. Um, Mm. uh, Roosevelt got rid of all that and said, well, we're going to have to find another place for the homeless. Now it did create issues elsewhere in the city because some of the city institutions weren't really equipped at that time. And I suspect the same is true today to some extent, um, to handle the homeless, but he got them out of the police stations. The police used to be involved in running elections. The Board of Elections was Yikes. part of the police department authority, so you had cops at the polls. Ugh. And that led to little but mayhem and, and problems. Um, Some people uh, would like to bring control, that back. <laughs> political, political control matters. Yes. Back oh, then yeah. it was Tammany, Tammany Hall, yes. highly political. Today you don't have, I, I, I would probably uh, contend that today the politics is not quite as much part of the police department as it as it was then oversight matters um back then very little uh today more it's it's not total as we mentioned cell phones and body cams but but um you know if i think when when police feel they're not being watched they they get away with things Indeed. get away with things uh, and the Constitution matters. And again, we talked about there this back go. then. Back then, there was no there was no Miranda rights. Right. Criminal rights were not respected. Um, today, at least on at least in theory and on paper, people have constitutional rights that they can assert. And the last one, and this is probably the more controversial. You can argue it different ways, but um, and forgive the phrase, size matters. Um, when the criminals outnumber the cops by to a large extent, uh, you know, law enforcement is more difficult. The ratio of cops to the population during the Gilded Age was about two cops per thousand citizens. Today, it's more like six per thousand. Mm. Um, there was a time when you know the police were in, in the gang during the gang years of the 1870s and 80s. Uh, the New York cops were were simply overrun, um, outmanned by the gangs, uh, and the gangs were brought under control. Um, 
And yet, um, these eventually. Days, the, I just, we don't have much time left, and I just want to bring up these days, you occasionally see the American flag uh, I, I think sort of uh, vandalized by having a blue stripe in it. That's people saying they want more police power. And that scares a lot of people. I mean, there was that unfortunate right. phrase, defund the police, which I sure. think has had the opposite effect. And there's a lot more recognition these days that other social service agencies might be able to better address nonviolent people who are in bad stages of their lives. Uh, from your not, are there other options that my my guess is the police don't even want to go into these well, bad that's situations. Well, that's why I mentioned the 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 tramp lodging houses. You know, at the time, it was part of the police mission to watch to live with the homeless. Um, huh. I think finally someone, you know, to Roosevelt said, hey, "This is crazy." You know, that's that should be done by a social service agency, not the police. Um, so they separated it. Now, you know, whether the social service agencies were cable back then. They weren't funded, you know, uh, adequately. But um, yeah, so they're uh, they're. Uh, I mean, that harkens today with, uh, with, you know, whether whether you call it defund the police or or repurpose the police. There oh, are some things. That's a better phrase. Yeah, there's some things that um, you know the police aren't necessarily trained and equipped right. to do, and and probably don't really want to do. Um, <laughs> so uh, you know, it, I said the numbers matter. Yes. Uh, but how you use those numbers is, is also important. I, and I got to ask, it's widely assumed that when police see white people, they tend to assume innocence. But when they see black people in particular, they assume guilt. Has, right. is, this, is this something new or has it been the case for many decades, do you think? Well, again, this is a period I didn't really cover, but I, I think it's probably been true for decades. I would analogize it. As I said, you know, back in the Gilded Age, it was 98% white. Back, but back then it was kind of you know they saw an Irish kid <laughs> on the street in a gang, uh -huh. and they assumed they were up to no good. Right. Uh, same <laughs> same with an Italian, you know, in down in Little Italy, Prince Street or someplace like that. If they saw a group of Italians congregating, they assumed they were up to no good. Right. So it's um, back then it was less racial than, as I say, you know, for uh, native versus foreign. Right. But I think I think it's a similar kind of thing. Yeah. with uh, black and white. Sort of plutocracy has uh, got to be protected. It seems to go on and on and on. There's a lot more we could talk about interesting stuff that people don't think about very often. The book is called Rogue's Gallery, The Birth of Modern Policing and Organized Crime in the Gilded Age of New York. Its author is John Aller. Thank you so much for being with us and uh, shedding light into this uh, very rarely looked at area. Thanks so much, John. Thank you. Police and thieves in the street. Oh, yeah. Scaring the nation with their guns and ammunition. Police and thieves in the street. Oh, yeah. Fighting the nation with their guns and ammunition. From Genesis to Revelation, the next generation will be me. From Genesis to Revelation, the next generation will be me. 